Welcome to the Ollie at WVU podcast, Get to Know Each Other. I'm your host for this episode, Michelle Clicious, and today we're talking with Leslie Backer, an Ollie member in Charleston who worked as a registered nurse for more than 50 years. In this episode, we discussed her work, her time in Northern Europe, and her work as an advocate for LGBTQ plus rights. Leslie said she never had to look for direction in her personal or professional life as her life experience always pushed her forward and energized her to get involved in the cases she has advocated. Thanks again to Leslie for agreeing to come on the podcast with me, as well as for her decades of advocacy work. Welcome, Leslie, and thank you for joining me today. Would you like Would you like to say a few words about yourself before we jump into all these questions I have for you? Oh, gosh. Thank you for asking me to do this. I'm interested in helping Ollie do what it can to keep going and get bigger in the state. And if anything I say is of interest to anyone, and if they want to do one of these interviews or something at some point, that would be great. That's it. <laughs> okay. Well, then let's jump in. I did send you the list of questions, so I shouldn't surprise you with anything, I hope. Nope. I'm going to, as I, uh, as I've done in previous ones, I'm going to ask you just a little bit about yourself. So what did you do before you retired and what did you, what do you miss about what you did? I was a nurse, a registered nurse, and I ended up teaching in nursing for, for quite a while. I retired from that. My mom got sick and I had to kind of call it a day and spend time there. What I miss, I miss student contact. I miss patient contact. I really, really liked what I did and I missed a lot of it for a long time. I don't know, it was a chance to watch growth and a chance to see that what you did meant something to somebody. Yeah. And I, I, I just enjoyed so much about it. And now when I see students and, or hear of them and how well they're doing, it just feels really good. Maybe that's selfish, but that's how it is. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, I totally, I totally get it. I come from a family of educators. So there's something about when, you know, you've taught someone and they get it and they're so excited about it. It's just such a wonderful feeling. Yes. And I had wonderful colleagues that I worked with. And the only thing I didn't like about it was all the meetings. <laughs> that goes for anything, I think. <laughs> Now, did you teach in uh, did you teach in Charleston or where did you where did you teach? I started teaching when we lived up in Philippi. I taught at Aldous and Broadus, mm -hmm. and then uh, I was there three years, and then we moved to Charleston when my husband finished his degree and got a job down here. I taught down here at the University of Charleston for about twenty six years, and then uh, helped start a new program in the, one of the community colleges here. Finished out there finished out teaching at the community college. So one was a baccalaureate program. The other was a commute was a two year, an ADN program, both of which uh, we need lots of. Now, what kind of nurse was there? Did you, did you have any specific kind of nursing that you focused on? Initially med sur medical surgical nursing, you know, kind of what you think of when you think of a nurse in a mm -hmm. hospital working with patients who'd had surgery or whatever, medical problems. But I ended up in community health and did home health, community health, and did that for a long time. That was mainly what I taught. But over that many years, you teach everything. <laughs> if you're a nursing faculty, I think. <laughs> I think that's a lot of faculty. They're like, oh, we need someone to do this. Yeah. You're a volunteer to do it. <laughs> but community health, community nursing, I really love that and did that. Yeah, I can I can see that being able to to go out and see people where they are. Exactly, is a huge and difference. Totally, totally, and uh, 
you learn so much from people and uh, experience nursing in such a different way and experience their lives in such a different way. You know, you're a guest in their home or a guest at their site. And that's different than them being planted in your place, like in the hospital. I think it would make people more comfortable. Yeah, in lots of ways it does. It does. So you told me in email that you lived and worked in Northern Europe in the 70s. So what do you miss about that area? Like, did you do the same thing there? Well, that's actually, actually probably what really got me most interested in community nursing. My husband was, let me backtrack just a little bit. My husband was in this country on an exchange visa. He's from the Netherlands. I met him here. And when his visa expired, he had to leave the country. Um, I went with him when we married and lived in Europe then for a couple of years. And living and working in a totally different type of environment really awakened me to how social situations impact health. And that led me more. And I worked on the a little church-related hospital, not a university hospital or anything like that. But I, I got to see how just even the design of the homes made recovery from surgery different. How so? Well, in Amsterdam, where we lived, for example, the stairways in those old homes are very, very narrow and very steep, almost like a ladder. And if you've had abdominal surgery, you can't go home two or three days later and manage yeah. stairs. People stayed in the hospital a whole lot longer to be stronger when they went home to manage those stairs. That makes, that that, makes that's sense. That's just one example. Yeah. And then grocery shopping. Here you can go to the grocery store and go home and put stuff in your freezer and you're good to go. But in down, you know, in Amsterdam, uh, we didn't live out in the country where homes might be bigger, but in Amsterdam, a lot of the places there was no refrigeration. And so you shop every day. So if you've had surgery, you can't get out and do that. So you stay in the hospital longer. Those are just a couple examples of how social differences and just the way houses and lifestyles were different impacted my work. Yeah. I had to learn to adjust to, to that. And it was interesting. I loved it. I can see that. I, The United States in comparison is such a young country, you know, when we see old houses, you know, here in West Virginia, they're really not that old comparatively. So. Well, some of these homes are built back in the 17, 1800s and have been remodeled on the inside, but they can't get bigger. They can only be remodeled. <laughs> and those homes were built because in old Amsterdam, the front of the house, the width of the house helped determine the tax <clears throat> on how much tax was placed on that house. Really? So aren't real wide. They're high, higher, <laughs> but they're not wide. So let's see. Um, what subjects are you passionate about and how did you come to those subjects? This is kind of all interrelated at this point, and I can't really do a linear kind of development for you to, to think That's about. That's all right. Ever since I was a kid, I was interested in cultural competence, cultural stuff. <clears throat> my family, my, my grandparents were German. We were discouraged from trying to learn another language because there was a stigma placed on speaking another language in some parts of the city. This was in Cincinnati, which is German. <laughs> I don't know. I've just always had this interest in, in other cultural stuff. And then I end up meeting my husband on a blind date and he's a guy from Holland. There was a kind of a strange connection that just happened. I got to go out of the country and live for a couple of years and that kind of further strengthened this interest. Um, you know, got to, I already spoke Latin, took that in high school and I did well in language, in that language, but to have to learn another one 
it was easy and I, I really enjoyed it. And everybody kept joking and teasing me, oh, you've got a real talent for learning languages or whatever. And that makes you feel good. So then you think, okay, you have to keep going with it, you know, learn some more. Then we came back to the United States and I got a job in the migrant stream in California and, you know, health, public health, uh, another language, all these different lifestyles. And so this just this development just kept going and going. And then my brother had come out to me as gay in the in the mid 1990s. And then another dear family friend came out shortly after that. And AIDS, my, my brother then told me he had AIDS and was in the, uh, you know, was quite ill. And I've been seeing all this stuff about everybody who's gay has, is sick and one thing and another. And I had two family members now who, who I knew and loved dearly. And, you know, I hadn't thought of them ever as being sick. Mm-hmm. And all these feelings just kept coming up. So I was thinking about cultural competency and being able to look at the gay culture as a, as a co-culture sort of, not subculture, but co-culture mm-hmm. for Appalachia or whatever. Things just kept whirling around me in my job experiences and life experiences. So my passions ended up being cultural competency, how to address people where they are and help care, and then um, LGBTQ rights. And those two just sort of wove in and out. Trying to decide what to do with my passion. I was, I was angry, I was scared, I was, you know, my brother was getting sicker and sicker. Meanwhile, I had a cousin then who died of AIDS, who I had no idea was, I hadn't seen him for years. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. And um, one of the new nursing books that year, that fall, you know, you're always getting new textbooks. One of the new textbooks started talking about gay individuals. And that statement was not associated with someone being ill. It was just a neutral statement. And I thought, wow, I went straight to my dean and I said, I'm going to put this in class, in my class, and there might be some kickback. I mean, this was the mid 90s and mid to late 90s. And, you know, there wasn't much conversation even then in this region yeah. about, about gay health or anything other than negative stuff. And, uh, and I don't know what other word to use other than stuff. It's not very professional. Yeah. No, no, no. It's all right. (laughs) And she, and she, um, uh, she said, fine. I said, if anybody comes to you and I know you'll send them to me after about four or five years, she and I were talking one day and she said one student had come to her early on and she told him to come see me, but nobody ever came. So I don't know what, why that student didn't come. Maybe she was afraid or something, but knowing the Dean, I'm sure she said there wouldn't be any repercussions if she had said anything negative to her teacher about something, you know, yeah, nothing like that. So anyway, I started introducing thoughts about gay health in my community health class as it interwove with cultural competency. Mm-hmm. Now that word cultural competency has got lots of different definitions and I'm speaking of it in the cons- in the way of um, that you approach people from their perspective, not yours. Yeah. So anyway, which means you have to learn about them. So I started talking about this in class. And then I started getting notes from students that they would slip inside of assignments or um, slip under my office door uh, that they needed to talk to me. 
that somebody in their family was gay or sometimes it turned out to be them, but the mm -hmm. note said it was somebody in their family. Over the years, this passion, these two passions, you know, addressing people with their healthcare needs from where they are, not from where I am. And then the LGBTQ rights have, have stuck with me. And that's, that's it. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, Th there, yes. <laughs> that it, it see, it almost seems like when doing something like that, like you would almost need a counseling degree on top of everything else because in the 90s there weren't a lot I don't remember a lot of that was when I was in college and I don't remember a lot of instructors being particularly open about LGBT issues well I think that that would have that would have added if you were willing to talk about it I would think that would have made students more interested in coming to you with their issues whether they were class related or not that did happen. And a couple students wanted to organize a, a group on campus. And I told them I'd, you know, work with them and sponsor them, mm -hmm. but they were a little bit afraid. And so we met privately, but um, as far as marketing the group on campus, they didn't want to do that. There was a little network among six or seven students, as I recall, that may have been bigger, but I'm only aware of six or seven. And there were probably times when I could have used some counseling. <laughs> It helped me deal with my fear and my anger for my, you know, family members. Mm -hmm. And then on, then what happened after that, just one thing built on another was Columbine out in Colorado. Yeah. Okay. My, my nephew was at Columbine. Oh, now he was not killed, but he was injured. And um, he was next to his best friend who was killed. Oh, and so now comes all this hate crime stuff. So that on top of the other two, there was hate crime feelings. I've done some work with hate crimes, you know, in the state, speaking at conferences, that kind of thing. But my, it's kind of woven in with the other two passions. It's not out there by itself in my mind. Yeah, no, that, that makes, yeah, that makes sense. So that, that's, that's a lot. So how is your nephew and did your brother survive? Or you don't have to talk about those things if you don't want to. Uh, for a long time, I couldn't. My brother died in 1996 That's in January. Right. And uh, at the end of January, the protease inhibitors were released to the market. Oh. He'd been, a, <laughs> he'd been um, in many of the studies. And he told me once that he'd had all the drugs as a subject. And, you know, this was the end. It wasn't, there weren't going to be any more for him. But uh, he was a lawyer in Philadelphia. Do you remember the movie about the Philadelphia lawyer? Yeah, um, with Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks and Antonio Banderas. Well, m my brother and that guy were best friends. Oh. And I was with my brother the night this guy died. And that was a very, very bad night. I lost my thought. <laughs> You're just talking oh. about your brother and your nephew. Yeah, I, and it, but no, he passed away in January. I, there were so many questions I wanted to ask the social worker, but of course she couldn't share anything. And, but she did say that he had been um, a volunteer subject in numerous studies and that she had never met anybody like him. Now I have to quit talking about him. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> and then um, my nephew survived. Mm -hmm. He um, was diagnosed with PTSD and so never went into military or anything. And he um, 
he's he's doing okay. He you know he's doing okay. He he still has he's had some other health issues not related along the way, and those those have impacted him too. He has seen a couple of the classmates commit suicide. Who were but that was kind of that was closer to the time that Columbine had happened, like within the next five years, I think. Yeah. And, um, these things have such long shadows, the repercussions yes. we don't see immediately. No. And the family is one that, you know, we just mark the day in our own minds and hearts, but we don't talk about it anymore. So. Yeah. I'm yeah. sorry. Would you like to, should, should I tell a joke? <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about your listeners. <laughs> so that ties into your community activism that you did later or at the same time as when you were teaching? Yeah. I probably started some of it about that time, but um, when I was teaching, yeah. At some point, I realized I had the skills and resources to speak out and write. And so if people asked me to speak publicly, I did. Uh, you can only be out as, as much as your family members are out. Yeah. So to turn a story into something very personal, you have to be careful. As I could, I spoke. But I was still pretty aware that a lot of the professional literature related being gay to ill, mm -hmm. mental illness, smoking, overweight, you know, all of the, it was always ill. And I, I kept, no, there, there's some health here somewhere. So I wrote a course for a continuing education program in Cal, for a company in California. It took them two years before the editors agreed to it. Wow. <laughs> and it was, yeah. It was simply an introduction to some model to some models of the coming out process, which are debated. And but they still publish the course as of today. It's still online. Wow. And that was in 2003. And so one one day they um, they took it offline to upgrade something. And the company called me to tell me it would be offline for a day, so that mm -hmm. if they, if I got any phone calls or whatever, it was going to go back online. There had been such demand for the program that they wanted me to know that somebody might try to reach me personally. Wow, that's that's awesome, though. I mean, that, that you had were able to get such reach. Yeah, that it knocked my socks off. We, you had mentioned in email that you were, uh, you did have community involvement, but there's less of that. It sounds like from what you were saying, there's less of that in Charleston oh. than there is in here in Morgantown. One of the things I did about the same time was. I started an organization called PFLAG mm -hmm. locally. PFLAG is an international organization, but and it's a group of family members and friends and allies of gay folks who work together to offer support and education and advocacy. So I started a group here, kind of led that in different forms. It's very loosely knit uh, for about 25 years. And then when I, I just got to where my mother was demanding so much time and so forth. I couldn't keep it up, keep going. The board kind of decided, okay, we'll phase this out. So we don't have a PFLAG group here. Mm -hmm. There is one in Fairmont and one in Morgantown now. I'm still listed on the national site as a resource person so people can find my name and can call me, but to come to a support meeting or something like that, we're not doing that anymore locally. That's, that's frustrating. Because I would think with Marshall and the University of Charleston, they would need that. Well, Marshall has, uh, I believe now, two LGBT groups on campus. They have really expanded. Good. At Marshall. And then there's another group in, in Huntington that's pretty good size, pretty active. 
the uh, the mayor over there and the president of the university are very LGBTQ supportive, and that's helped. Locally, yeah, I'm disappointed that no one has stepped up here. But I, I think one of the things that maybe has happened is LGBTQ stuff generally is so much more accepted than it was even five years ago. Oh, very much. <laughs> so maybe people aren't, you know, family members and friends aren't feeling the pressure that they used to feel so much of the time. I do know after the Pride Festival in the, in the summer, the last couple of years, we didn't do it this year, of course, but there were, I would always get calls, people wanting some help, or, mm. or we would go to the festival and have a table and there people would come up and, you know, ask for some information or whatever. Yeah, locally, no one has stepped up and I, I wish they would. I'm available <laughs> if anybody's listening and wants to, you know, I've still got all my papers and all my stuff. I know it's better than it used to be. I know far fewer kids who are thrown out by their parents, essentially. Right. I mean, it still does happen. There are still people that are not willing to love people as they are. Yeah, I, I hear stories off, too often even here in the Valley, you know, of, of things that happen. Yeah, that's just, that's just depressing. Yeah. So on, on a happier note, how would you make the world a better place? We'll get us a little more positive here. <laughs> I was afraid that this would, you know, sort of <laughs> be a downer kind of, kind of thing. And I, I certainly don't want it to be. I don't know. I've thought about that a lot. And to me, it's all about education. Mm -hmm. And in the broadest sense, and in the, um, you know, down to the individual, not just facts, but exposing yourself to people who aren't like you, in whatever way that is, <laughs> which means meeting people and intentionally getting in, you know, conversations with people, going to concerts, going to Whatever, wherever you can get yourself where there's something different than who you are, you know, yeah. to me, that would be just a major thing that we all ought to be required to do <laughs> somehow. But to me, that would make a big difference. Just educating people. It's so important to keep learning stuff. I just think the bottom line is education and making yourself uncomfortable in some way. That's hard. That's super, super hard. You know, but when you're uncomfortable, you can start to empathize them with the other person and or other situation. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and part of education is being able to recognize when you're perhaps not right about something, you know, you yeah. made a mistake or you misunderstood something. And that's, that's really hard for people to do to go, Oh, you know what? I didn't, I didn't get that. And right. that's something that I think education in general, if you are willing, if you're open to education and you're open to learning, I think that makes people more open to perhaps seeing things in a different way. Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. I want to go back to the advocacy thing just uh -huh. for a minute because I want to do a little bit of education here. One of the things that I did was work with a group of people who changed the West Virginia Department of Education policy 4373. And level three of that policy addresses harassment, bullying, and intimidation of students staff and employees. And we got the, the statement to enumerate sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression. And so those three things are now protected in West Virginia through this policy. Was that just in the past couple years? It, I, I... it was about six or seven years ago, I think we, that it got okay. passed. It's been a while, but people still don't know about it. And if yeah. any listeners are feeling or know of anyone who's feeling that they're uncomfortable at school for whatever reason, they might look at that policy and have some backup for some action they might want to 
pursue. So to end on a completely fun note, um, what are you reading right now? Or what have you read recently that you've loved? Well, it's funny because if this doesn't fit in, I don't know what does. It's called Mile 445. I just Mm -hmm. finished Mile 445, Hitched in Her Hiking Boots. And it's about a a girl, a woman, who um, decided she was going to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. And she met her husband on the trail and they got married at mile mark 445. Uh, Claire Henley Miller is her name. And it was, I love the mountains and I love being outside and it just kind of fits. (laughs) Yeah. So do do you mostly read nonfiction or do you, you know, do you do any reading for fun or mostly just nonfiction? No, I read both fiction and nonfiction. I like biographies and, but for some reason the last month or so, I think it's been all the political stuff. I've had trouble settling down to read. Yeah. This book caught me. It, it got read. <laughs> yeah, that that's a, everyone I know is either reading all the books and can't do anything else or can't read anything and are basically, you know, binging on Netflix because they just can't concentrate enough to read. It's just yeah, been yeah. a year. But no, that this was a, a fun book for people who like to hike and be outside. Cool. I will. I will look for that. So, well, was there anything else that you'd want you'd wanted to you know mention or talk about oh gosh I hadn't really thought about anything else no I don't think so okay well in that case we will go ahead and close things here thank you again Leslie so much for joining me and talking to me I've had a lot of fun and I really I really enjoyed listening to you and you know I really appreciate you know the advocacy and the work that you have been willing to do that's really not a lot of people have that I guess inner strength to be able to put up with all the pushback that you sometimes get so that's really lovely well thanks for asking me and and I'll take that as a compliment and thank you very much you know it was something had to be done yeah but it's hard be the one to step up and do it. So thank you. I've had a lovely conversation. And if you think of any new books to read, you can always let us know. My thanks again to Leslie for agreeing to talk with me. If you're interested in learning more about PFLAG or the course materials Leslie wrote, or information on Ollie and our upcoming schedule of courses, I'll have links for you in the show notes. If you would like to be on our podcast, know someone you think I should interview, or just want to leave us feedback, please reach out to us at olli at hsc.wvu.edu. That's ollie at hsc.wvu.edu. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you all in class.